Amen. Amen. We'll be there in those two places right off the bat, 1 Corinthians 15, and then a few minutes we'll be to Acts 26, looking at never getting over the resurrection, never getting over the resurrection. So as you turn there, get there, I want to remind you that we do have a business meeting next, this coming Sunday evening. Business meeting this coming Sunday evening at 5.30. It is potluck, which means bring something, bring something to it. Of course, of course Forrest is going to amen that. We hadn't even gotten going. He's already amen in the potluck. Love you, Forrest. If you're a note taker, fbcdan.com slash notes or that QR code, you can have my notes and you can email them to yourself. So be feel free to use that if that helps you. If it doesn't, then don't do it. We'll be good to go. It seems like every year, uh, the Sunday after Easter, I always have the same thought. I'm not over the resurrection. I, I think that every, the week after Easter every year, we, we, we make a, such a big deal about it on Easter, as we should, and then sometimes the Sunday after can almost feel like a letdown, um, especially when it falls on Women of Joy weekend, and we have a lot of people out uh, this week that wouldn't, would normally be here, but I just, you know, we say it, but I want us to actually really reflect on it this year. We say, hey, we can celebrate this resurrection every Sunday. Josh just prayed. We should celebrate the resurrection every day. We should never, ever, ever get over the resurrection. And we're looking at someone today, the Apostle Paul, who definitely never got over seeing the resurrected Jesus. And that's where we're going to be digging into today and just the hope and the, and the truth that we can find in that. So the first part we're starting in is in first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we're going to start in chapter 15, verse 13. Let's read through that through 19. It says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God. Because we have testified about God that he raised up Christ. So we're lying about God if this hasn't happened. Whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith and my faith and our faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Verse 18, therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. No hope for them either. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Now, I've referenced these verses numerous times for numerous reasons, at new, for different, different sermons and things like that. But th these, this verse, it, it comes back to me every year after Easter. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. No resurrection, no hope, church. Not for me, not for you. Not for those who have already passed away. No resurrection. No hope. Not only that, Paul goes on to say right here that if there's no resurrection, which means your faith was worthless, it means that we're all fools for being here right now, for wasting our time following Jesus. Anything that we do, if there is no resurrection, the whole thing is a waste 
of time. That was the response I expected to get to that. It's a pretty heavy truth. It's a big deal. The resurrection is a big, big deal. We're going to dig into Paul this morning, where he came from, what happened to him. Going to get a history lesson. For those of you that don't like that, I'll wake you up towards the end. But for those that do, you're going to get a history lesson. And we're going to look at how the, what happened to Paul and the fact that he never, ever got over the resurrection and what that means for us. So this dude, Paul, he went through a lot. He's got a lot going on. Uh, his, his Paul of Tarsus is his name. Um, he was born around AD 10. We don't know exactly, but about AD 10. He was born to a Jewish family, a family of Pharisees, the tribe of Benjamin, which is probably why his Hebrew name is Saul, after King Saul, who was also a Benjamite. Of course, that was a thousand years before him, but people were still naming their son Saul. Saul and Paul are the same person. It has nothing to do with his transformation. That's a good preaching technique to say that, but it's really not true. The reason he's called Paul later on in the Bible is because he was speaking to Greeks most of the time, so he went by his Greek name. Um, so Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is the way you would say it in Greek. Same person. Born into the city of Tarsus in the province of Cilicia. Jews were brought to Cilicia, to Tarsus, in 171 B.C. So 180 years before Paul was ever there, or before Paul was born. And they were brought there by the Romans to increase business in the region. And this is how Paul is both well-educated, trained Pharisee Jew, and a Roman citizen. He, he inherited Roman citizenship, which proves to be very, very beneficial for him later in his life, and we'll get to that towards the end today. So Paul became a Pharisee of Pharisees, a very zealous, religious Jew. When the way came along, which is what Christianity was called early on, he hated it. He hated the way. He hated those that followed the way. He hated Jesus, who had caused this thing called the way. He thought he was a blasphemer, a, a, a liar about God. He actively tried to snuff it out. And then, as he's going to get more Christians and try to jail them and or torture them and or kill them and or whatever may take place, Jesus appeared to him in a bright, blinding light. The resurrected Jesus. Never forget that fact. Not just Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. This is after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension. And then Jesus shows up to Paul. And everything, and I mean everything in the world has changed since that happened. Everything has changed since that happened. Paul never, ever, ever got overseeing with his own eyes the resurrected Jesus and what that meant for all who trust in Jesus, that truth, that fact. So after Paul sees Jesus, comes to faith, he immediately gets baptized because that's what you do to identify with Jesus. When you come to faith in Christ, you immediately get baptized. And then Paul, after that, spent three years in the desert in Arabia, being prepared for ministry. What, what was he doing? We don't really know. Praying, contemplating things he had been learned, had been taught, contemplating, contemplating what it all meant, 
his, his pharisaical training, his, his, his unbelievable knowledge and mind of the Old Testament, how all that was applying to Jesus. The Holy Spirit was working through him, working on him for three years. And then, as a, as a first-time Jesus follower, he goes to Jerusalem. Not the first time he had been to Jerusalem, first time he had been back to Jerusalem as a follower of Jesus. It's been three years since he came to faith. Three years since he saw the blinding light. Three years since that has happened. He went there. He visited he visited with Peter. He spent 15 days with Peter. He learned a lot. He was not accepted by most Christians at that point in his life, you know, because Stephen and stuff, you know, they were still kind of mad about the fact that he had been killing them uh, and a little scared of him, and they didn't think it was genuine. And at that time, because he was not accepted, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, including Peter, said, why don't you just go back to Tarsus? Go back to where you're from. See how that goes. Ten years he goes back to Tarsus. Ten years. What was he doing? Preaching, praying, reading the word, loving on people, being prepared for what was to come. Being prepared for what was to come. And there is a huge lesson in that for young, and I don't mean young age-wise, I mean young people in the ministry. There's this thing today like everybody thinks this part is cool. And a lot, a lot of Jesus followers, they want to do this. Like they want to jump up here and be this guy because I see him on Instagram and I see him on all the stuff and it looks cool, right? And they forget that there's a preparation period for things like that. Paul spent 13 years in between coming to faith before he was ever used by Jesus and ever used by the church. Logan and I call that windshield time. He got some windshield time with him and the Lord. So fast forward. Many years, many years, after, uh, after the 10 years, Barnabas goes up to Antioch and says, Hey, Paul, time for you to start helping. Time for you to start helping. So he starts working at Antioch, and this is when the, the word is first taken to Gentiles. Up to this point, the church had only shared Jesus with Jews. That's why I say everything changed when God chose Paul to take it to the world. Without that, you and I wouldn't know. Or be allowed. It was still a Jewish thing at this point in time. So, 10 years, Barnabas comes, starts the church at Antioch, spends a couple of years doing that, and then we fast forward many years, okay? Paul goes on to being a missionary from that point on. Bam, he's a missionary. He goes on one missionary journey. He goes on two missionary journeys. He goes on a third missionary journey. He's planted dozens of churches. He's done a lot. He's getting near the end. He doesn't know it. But he's getting near the end of his third missionary journey, and he wants to get to Jerusalem with an offering that he's taken up from a lot of the churches. He wants to get that offering to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. So we're at A.D. 57 by this point. Okay? A lot has happened. A lot has happened. A.D. 57, he wants to get this offering to Jerusalem, and then he wants to leave Jerusalem and go to Rome and meet the Roman church there, spend time with them on his way to Spain. That's his goal. He states that in the letter to the Romans. That's what he's trying to do. So we're in the spring of 57. The leaders of the church there in Jerusalem say, hey, Paul, when he gets there, we got a big problem, bud. Big problem. Uh, none of the Jewish Christians like you. They don't say it like that, but that's pretty much what they're saying. I mean, you, you hear through the words they're saying. we got a problem. They don't like you. They don't trust you. They think that you're teaching and that you believe that they can't be Jewish anymore, even though they follow Jesus. 
That was a big deal. It, it would be like me saying, all right, you can be, follow Jesus, but you can never say anything pro-America again. Exactly. That's how much you'd like that. Okay? So, that's what they're thinking, these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They think that, that, that they can't continue their Jewish customs now that they've become a Christian. And they think that you don't respect the Jewish laws now that you're Christian. So can you take these four guys who are making a Nazarite vow, that's for another day, to the temple, make the vow with them, pay for their sacrifice, be cleansed ritually, ceremonially, and show that you don't have a problem with still being Jewish even though you're following Jesus. And Paul says, because it doesn't deal with doctrine and it doesn't deal with salvation, it's just getting along with people, nothing wrong with that. Paul says, sure, I'll do that. So he's in Jerusalem, and he does that. That's a seven-day process for this to take place. Seven days. So Paul goes and does this, seven days. On the seventh day, some Jews from Asia, quote, unquote, in Acts, probably from Ephesus, big blow up in Ephesus. You can read that in Acts 19 on your own time. Crazy story. It might have been from Thessaloniki, because we know that some Jews from Thessaloniki followed him as well, but it was probably from Ephesus. <clears throat> the Jews from Asia cause an uproar on this seventh day. Paul's almost done being ceremonial clean. They cause an uproar. They get Paul arrested. They assume or just flat out lie. We don't know if they assumed or if they're just lying. But either way, they say, this dude brought Trophimus, the Ephesian, into the inner temple court, which was bad. <laughs> bad thing to do. Big, big Big, big no-no. How big of a deal? We know this historically. There was a low barrier that separated the court of the Gentiles, which were Gentiles like a guy like Trophimus could be, to the court of, the, court of women, and then the even more inner court, court of Israel, the court of men. So there's like, as you go further to the center, it's less and less people that can go in there. And Gentiles couldn't go. There was a low barrier that separated court of Gentiles into the inner courts, and it said this, and it was said it in Greek and in Latin, which means the Romans put it up there, which means they approved of this as well because they didn't want a riot happening. It said this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Big deal. Gentiles didn't go into the inner court. So when they... When the Jews from Asia say, hey, Paul brought this dude Trophimus into this place. He has defiled the temple. He has defiled God's temple. He is blasphemer. He is, there's no telling what they're saying at this point. But that was their charge against him, that he had done this. He didn't bring Gentiles into the inner temple complex. He just didn't. And Paul didn't. But this was the charge these rabble-rousers brought against Paul to stir up the people. He's defiled the temple with a Gentile. He's defiled the temple with the Gentile. Nothing hardly worse they could have said about Paul. So, anyway, now Paul's in trouble. This is a big deal. Acts says the whole city wants a piece of him at this point, which is Luke's hyperbole of saying lots of people were mad, and they wanted to do something about this. They violently drag him out of the temple because they're not going to do to him what they're about to do to him inside the temple. And they drag him outside of the temple and they lock the gate. And they're trying to kill him, Acts says, 
which means they're beating the absolute tar out of him. He's getting jumped. He's getting ganked, as we would say where I come from. Word quickly gets up to the Roman commander. The Roman soldiers, they, especially during a, a, a time like Pentecost, a, a festival like Pentecost, they were around the temple and they were paying attention because they did not want a riot to take place. This is during the Pax Romana. This is the peacetime of Rome. And we ain't letting you or anybody, or especially no Jews, mess that up. So any kind of thing that gets messed up, any kind of uproar, they're going to squash it in a hurry. And word gets to the commander quickly. They're on high alert. The city is swelling. The city swells with visiting Jews from near and far during this time. They're on high alert, and the word gets to him, and he responds quickly. His name is Claudius Lysias. He's a commander. The word commander in the Greek is chiliarchos, which means he was a leader of a thousand. Big, big-time dude. I mean, if you're in the military and you're leading a thousand guys, you're, you're a big-time guy. And so he responds quickly. He takes soldiers and centurions, some of Rome's finest, and they run down there from his perch, from where they are, to where the chaos is. They see them, the, the people that are stomping Paul, they see him coming, and they stop, and they kind of disperse a little bit because, you know, Roman soldiers are coming to do something. The soldiers scoop up Paul to arrest him because obviously he's done something he's not supposed to do. And they're asking, hey, who is he? What's he done? As they're scooping him up and getting him out of this, this situation that he's in, this violent situation that he's in. And the mob shouts and shouts and shouts and shouts, and they're all screaming. And maybe you've heard this before, but they're all screaming. And it's chaos and it's confusion. So the commander, Claudius Lysus, has taken Paul away to the barracks to figure it out because he can't hear what they're saying. And it's just utter chaos. This is all in Acts. I'm not pulling these from history books. It's just in the Bible. It's like really cool stuff in there when we take time and read it and think about it. <clears throat> and they're trying to get him out of there, and Paul couldn't even walk up the steps, it says. That's how beat up he was. They had to carry him up the steps. He's gotten the tar kicked out of him by this point. The soldiers are carrying him. And then Paul speaks to the commander in Greek. I wasn't expecting that from this Jew. In Greek, it gets his attention. And he asks for permission to address the people. And he starts talking to the people in their language, in the, he, in the Hebrew language, Aramaic at the time. And, and if, as he turns and starts speaking to them in their own language, it sounds like that. You ever heard that? There's a big uproar and then just a hush comes over the crowd. And they start listening. And they listen for a little bit. And then he starts talking about Jesus. And then they get mad again. So they take him out of there. And the commander decides, you know what? We're just going to take this guy in the back, and we're going to beat the truth out of him. Because Romans were really good at that. We're going to beat the truth out of this Paul dude. And as they're preparing to begin the beating, Paul says, whoa! In Greek, to the commander, to the centurion at the time, I'm a Roman citizen, and I have not been charged with a crime. Smart dude. Uh, hey guys, this isn't legal what you're doing. I'm a Roman. I'm not just some Jew that you're beating up. I'm a Roman citizen. Whoa, that changes things. The centurion runs to the commander, tells him what Paul has said. Now they're all scared because now they've broken the law. So they release Paul. 
But they convene the Sanhedrin and they say, y'all get together and figure out what's going on with this dude and what the whole thing is because we don't want to riot in our city. That's not a good thing. can't happen. So they convene the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court officials. They want to know what this is all about. During this meeting, Paul brings up the resurrection of the dead to our point for today. I haven't forgotten the point, I promise. And this was a genius move on Paul's part because you have two groups of people in the Sanhedrin. You've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, period. The Pharisees do. Paul brings up, hey, they're mad because of the resurrection of the dead. That's what I'm standing on. That's the truth I'm standing on. So they start arguing amongst themselves. Throws the meeting into chaos. The commander pulls Paul out of this again because it's chaos. Now, at this point, Paul's nephew, his sister's kid, overhears them plotting this, 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 this plot, this plan. They say, hey, we'll get them to move him, have another hearing, and when they move him, this time we're going to get him. We'll just mess on all the court stuff. We'll just ambush him and kill him. And his nephew overhears this, and he goes and tells the commander. The commander can't let a Roman citizen be killed by a bunch of Jews. That's not good. So they transfer him to another location for another hearing. So the commander sneaks him out of Jerusalem to Caesarea, a place of higher authority than Judea, where they were. So the person there has got more say-so than the the commander would have had here. And they sneak him out to to Caesarea. It's about 30 miles away, and and he says, take about 500 troops. In case you were wondering how big of a deal this was, if I'm not painting a good enough picture of the chaos that is taking place, he sends Paul, one guy, in the middle of the night, out of town with nearly 500 troops to make sure Paul gets out of there and makes it to Caesarea. And so they do. And they take him and deliver him to the governor of Caesarea, a guy named Felix. They deliver Paul to Felix with a letter. Claudius Lysias, the commander, has written a letter to explain what has taken place. Now... The letter explains things, but of course, Claudius, as most of us probably would have, exaggerates things and de-emphasizes things, makes himself look pretty good in the situation, says he saved him, which isn't exactly true, but it's kind of true. He makes himself look good, but but he pretty much tells the overall story of what's taking place. Here's the quote from the letter that always sticks out to me in Acts 23, verse 29. I find this very interesting. I found out that the accusations were about disputed matters in their law and that there was no charge that merited death or chains. This dude shouldn't be arrested, but I don't know what to do. So I'm sending him to you. But he's arrested because they can't agree whether the resurrection is real or not. So Paul now goes before Felix and has to give another defense of what is taking place. He gives another defense of what is taking place. He tells it all, and he does it all, and all that, and Felix is listening, and then Felix adjourns this court hearing and says, hey, I'm going to wait for Lysias, the commander from Jerusalem, 30 miles away. I'm going to wait for him to get here and speak on his behalf, because that's what you do in a trial. And when that happens, then I'll decide what to do. Felix is trying to wait Paul out. Felix is expecting a bribery payment. He thinks, let this dude stay in jail for a few days. 
that he'll figure it out. I'm in charge, and we'll have some conversations, and I'll kind of make it known that you just slide me a little something, something, and I'll get you out of here. Well, Paul doesn't do that because Paul is Paul. He's kind of an upstanding guy. Two years later, Paul's still in prison in Caesarea. Felix is still the governor of Caesarea. They've had multiple conversations, he and Felix. Paul's been basically under glorified house arrest this entire time. He's a prisoner, but, but he's, you know, he has some freedoms. His friends can come see him. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's doing all the things. And then a new governor gets appointed, right? A new governor gets appointed to Caesarea, Portius Festus. This is a funny name. <laughs> Felix, in his last departing act in office, which politicians like to do, no offense, but they do, he's leaving office and he's like, eh, I have to live amongst these Jews. Let's do something to make them happy. So he leaves Paul in prison. He could have released Paul right then, but he didn't. New guy comes in. <clears throat> New guy comes in after Paul's been left in jail. Uh, and Portius Festus, who's over this area, visits Jerusalem. And the chief priests and the leaders try to get Festus to send Paul from Caesarea, 30 miles away, to Jerusalem so they can try him in their court, still fully intending to ambush him. Granted, you didn't catch this, it's been two years since this has all taken place. But they still want to get him there. They want to kill him while he's on the way. That's their plan. Of course, Festus knows all this because Felix has already told him all this because Felix knew it. So, but they come, they bring their charges against Paul, they're outrageous. Well, let me back up. Uh, Festus says, no, 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 I know you're trying to kill him. He doesn't say that, but he knows. Y'all have to come here. So they come to Caesarea, bring some lawyer. You know how them lawyers are, right, John? <clears throat> Amen. No, and seriously, he brings some, like, stereotypically the worst part of what we think of with lawyers they, is what the Jews bring. And he gives some trumped-up junk about Paul. It's outrageous. They can't prove any of it. They have no witnesses to prove any of it. And Paul says, hey, I'm innocent of all this junk. Now, Festus, wanting to please the Jews, you'll notice that several times in this section, wanting to please the Jews, asked Paul, hey, are you willing to go to Jerusalem? Well, Paul's not stupid. Surely he's been told, he's been had visitors, he knows what they're trying to do. So Paul, knowing they're going to try to ambush him, says, hey, two years, I've had enough of this. I'm innocent. I'm a Roman citizen, and I appeal to Caesar. It'd be like saying, oh, we're out in the middle of a court case. It's like, nope, I'm done. You just push the magic button. I want to go to the Supreme Court. I'm done with these lower courts. Take me to the Supreme Court. Let them decide. Because Paul doesn't want to get sent to Jerusalem and killed along the way. He's not stupid. Now, the irony is, had he not done this, he probably would have got out later and been fine. But that wasn't the case, and that wasn't God's plan. So, Festus says, okie doke. You want to go to Caesar? To Caesar you will go. Then more time passes, and King Agrippa comes. And King Agrippa ruled all of Palestine, so he was an even higher official. Now, this is not in my notes, but real quick. Jesus said to Paul at the beginning, I will use you to be the voice to the Gentiles, and then he named several other things. And then one of the things he names is the king. Paul's fixing to be before the king. Pretty cool. The Bible's really cool. Just saying. So King Agrippa, he's in charge. He's in charge from AD 52 to AD 95. We know that from Roman history. He comes by to visit Caesarea. And he stays for many days. 
So naturally, the situation about Paul comes up between Festus and King Agrippa. And King Agrippa asks for his opinion and his advice on this situation. And Agrippa says, hey, I want to hear from this dude directly. This story is insane. I want to hear from him directly. I don't want to just, you know, I want to hear from him. He says, okay. So they set up this big show. Big show. It's not an official court proceeding because Paul has already appealed to Caesar. And it's been granted. So he knows he's headed to Rome. This is not an official thing, but Festus, Festus uh, wants so, but Festus does all this and, and, and has a big pompous circumstance, right? And he's doing this for Agrippa so that Agrippa can help him have the words to send him to Rome with. Because he can't say, well, this guy appealed to Rome, but I really don't have any charges against him. Okay, he can't do that. He's got to have something. So he's trying to get help. And so they have this big pompous circumstance, fake court proceeding for the king. And Paul gets a chance to talk again. And now we're going to pick it up in Acts 26. Acts 26. Are we getting hot in here? Or is it just me? This daggum jacket makes me hot. Who's hot? Raise your hand if you're hot. Raise your hand if you're freezing cold. You're wrong. All right. I turned that air conditioner on. So if you're hot, get up and get on this side. If you're cold, get up and go on that side. You're always freezing, you pansy. Just kidding, I love you. So, Paul is before King Agrippa in this big pomp and circumstance. You can just picture how big of a deal this would have been as they come proceeding in and all this stuff. Now, Agrippa, Acts 26, verse 1, said to Paul, You're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul extended his hand and proceeded to make his defense. I love that detail that Luke gives us there. This isn't something made up. Luke is there and he sees it. Paul says, All right, just like you and I would do if we were trying to make a point. Those hands get active. Verse 2, regarding all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that I'm about to make my defense before you today. He's been in jail for no reason for two years, but he's fortunate to be there, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. That's preacher speak for I'm fixing to take a while. The word there for fortunate is makarios. Same exact Greek word that Jesus says when he says, blessed are you. Paul considers this a blessing, what is taking place. It's crazy what you can do in your mind, how your mindset can be when you live from the power of the resurrection. Verse 4, all the Jews know my way of life from my youth. Get patient, sir. Here comes the story. Which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in, in Jerusalem. They had previously known me for quite some time. If they were willing to testify, oh yeah, but they're not here they didn't show up again if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion I lived as a Pharisee and now I stand on trial that didn't click did it come on thing work and now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers the promise our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. This is the whole point of this Jewish thing. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That's the whole hope, Paul says. It's always been the hope. The restoration of a forever kingdom. Resurrection has to happen for there to be a forever kingdom. 
It has to happen, Paul's saying. And he goes on to say how he was opposed to this Jesus and this way. And in verse 9, he says, In fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. And I did all this in Jerusalem. And I was there when this guy died. And I cast my vote, figuratively or literally, it doesn't matter. And I did all this stuff. And I'm pursuing people to great city. And I'm doing all this stuff. And I was heading to carry out these things. And I was going to go get more of them and put more of them in jail. And as I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority, from the chief priest, from the high priest, and with the commission to go do this, as I was doing that, King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language, Key. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You're doing the wrong thing, bud. Quit kicking against the goads. And then Paul says, who are you, Lord? The answer that you have, church, to that question is the most important answer to the most important question that you can have. Who is Jesus to you? He says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what... I will reveal to you. So Jesus was obviously meeting with Paul during those three years in Arabia. We never get details about it, but that had to have been happening by the Holy Spirit. So he's going to teach him things. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified. Paul says, hey, Jesus chose me and told me to go preach in his name to the Gentiles. This message, this message of good news, this gospel. And so, King Agrippa, I've gone on and I've preached and I've preached and taught and taught everywhere I could. And in verse 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. To this very day I have obtained help that comes from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. I'm just preaching the truth, man. And for this, this is the reason that I'm here. This is the reason they're bringing charges against me. I haven't broken the law. I haven't done anything to these people. I've simply preached the message of Jesus. And what is that message? He says it in verse 23 that the Messiah must suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Here is the gospel. God's anointed one, the Messiah, must suffer and die, but he resurrected. And you, by faith, can do the same. He's gone on this long thing, and then Festus, the governor, breaks in. He's like, Paul, hey, Bo, <laughs> you're losing it. Because I'm sure Paul was fairly passionate in this speech. You're losing it, buddy. Too much time spent studying. You're losing your mind. Your mind's all... You're going crazy, man. Paul says, no. No, Festus. I'm not out of my mind. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment, for the king knows about these matters. It is to him I'm actually speaking boldly. I love that. All these people, all this pomp and circumstance, 
Paul says, I'm talking to the king. That's who I'm speaking to boldly. I've talked to you for a long time, Festus. You've had your day. He didn't say that, but that's my attitude. Uh, now, Paul, catch it, has already appealed to Caesar at this point. So this isn't an official legal proceeding. It's really just for show. All the pomp and circumstance with the king entering and all that. Paul doesn't believe he's going to get off here and be released. He knows that. That's not the defense he's given. He's not trying to get out of jail. He's not trying to do that. But he does have an agenda. But getting out of jail ain't it. He's preaching and hoping that King Agrippa gets saved. That's his point in this chapter. Whoa, that's crazy. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his notice, talking to King Agrippa in third person, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Do you believe, King? I know you believe. Scriptures point to it. I'm telling you it happened. Paul says, hey, I'm speaking boldly to you, King. It ain't like, he says it wasn't done in the corner. It ain't like any of this was done in secret, bro. You know about it. You've heard about it. You know about all the stuff that's happened. You know God's word. And then he says, do you believe? I know you do. Do you? Do you? Here in the Baptist church, we call that a good old-fashioned invitation. That's what that's called. I heard Steve Gaines say one time, you hadn't shared the gospel until you invite someone to accept it. You can talk about Jesus, but Paul doesn't just talk about Jesus. He says, you believe this, don't you, King? Invitation. Whew. Good stuff in the Bible, man. Verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I like how the NIV says this one. It says it this way. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short amount of time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul says, short time, long time. I don't care. Make me no difference. I pray to God that not only you, but everybody here listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. I pray, King, that everyone listening, including you, will hear the truth that Jesus died for them, shed his blood for them, was buried for three days, proving he was dead, but came back to life. I pray you become like me, that you put your faith in that. The only thing I don't want you to have is these dead gum chains they've had on me for over two years for no reason, except for these chains. I want you to be a born-again, forgiven sinner that has inherited eternal life because Jesus resurrected and I will too, Paul's saying. The king says, hey, this man didn't deserve imprisonment, let alone death. But he's already appealed to Caesar. So that's that. Send him on. Send him on. And that's what they do. The pages keep sticking together today. Send him on. Of course, he gets sent on. Gets to Rome. Preaches there for two years on house arrest. Writes some of the letters that we read all the time he gets to Rome which was his goal not by the way that he thought he was going to but he gets there why did God make Paul go through all that well God didn't make Paul go through all that he used all of that so that you and me could still be knowing about Jesus one man suffering for so many to be saved and come to faith God's plans bigger than you it's bigger than me a lot of things happen don't waste your time trying to figure that out that's what it is. It's a waste 
of time. You can't understand what's taking place. But when you live in the power of the resurrection, you can do that. What, what do I mean when I say that? I mean, knowing there's a resurrection, then you know all things are going to be made right. All things are going to be made right forever. It doesn't matter if it hurts now. It doesn't matter if it's not right now. It's not up to you to fix it and make it right. I mean things that are out of your control. I don't mean things that are in your control. Why, why is it so-and-so being punished? So-and-so's going to be punished. Unless they repent, place their faith in Christ. It's not up to us to judge. Live from the power of the resurrection. All of that. Why does all that take place? Paul says it in Acts 24. When he's given his first offense to the first dude when he's in Caesarea. Or about this one statement, I cried out, cried out while standing among them. Today I'm being judged before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. Never, church, never ever get over the resurrection. It's what everything hinges on. The blood had to be shed to cover your sin. The cross is absolutely amazing. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is truly godly. And at the exact same time, the resurrection is what proves this truth to be true and to be acceptable to God the Father. No resurrection, no hope. No resurrection, no forgiveness of sin. No resurrection, our time is wasted vainly together. But Jesus did resurrect back to life. He did resurrect back to life. So now we've got to take everything he said really seriously. The resurrection is the key. When we share the gospel with our lives and with our words, it's the cross and the resurrection. They're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. One hope that we can be made at peace with God. One way, the gospel of Jesus. The cross and the resurrection, that is the gospel. Forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life. If God can do that, what can he do? We talked about that last week. And we'll finish with Paul's words to the Romans about this very subject. At the beginning of his letter to the Romans, this is where we'll finish. Last verse. He introduces himself and he says, God's good news, which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and who has been declared to be the powerful son of God. How? By the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Never, ever, 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 ever get over the resurrection. Live from the hope of the resurrection. Live in the power of the resurrection. Or for someone here today, here or listening, that has not placed their faith in Christ, submit to the truth of the resurrection. That's what it's all about. I'm going to pray for us and we'll finish in song. Father, I thank you and I love you. And I thank you that... Lord, I thank you that you have the ability to resurrect the dead back to life. You proved it with yourself. Lord, you ask us to place our hope and trust into that truth. And I pray that we would live from that truth. Live from that glorious hope. We do not grieve or mourn as those who do not have hope. We have the hope. We know that you will resurrect all. Those that are in faith to eternal glory. Those who are not eternal damnation, God. Right's going to be 
rewarded and wrong is going to be punished, God. And right is Jesus, and that's it. Faith in Jesus. That's what gives us righteousness, God. Let's live from that truth. Teach me to live from that truth, to not get bungled up in the things of this world, worried about the day-to-day, get bogged down in the day-to-day and forget that there's a resurrection coming. Whew. Teach me to live from that hope, God. Somebody here today that needs you, needs to know you for the first time, God, I pray that that would happen, that the Holy Spirit would convict and do what only the Holy Spirit can do.